remember the first time, um, well, I was in, I think I was a freshman, I was in math class, I think it was geometry, and um, if you went to Crew County Schools, you remember Mr. Syme was one of the math teachers, and uh, he, I think it was geometry, because I remember we took a test, and this is the first time I'd ever heard of anybody grading on a curve. Matt, you guys grade on cur- a curve ever? Oh yeah, all the- <laughs> it's like, okay. And I never heard of that before, but we took a test and it was after the test that Mr. Syme came back and he said, well, I'm gonna have to grade this one on a curve. <laughs> you know, it was one of those where like everybody did so bad that he's like, okay, if I don't do that, everybody's gonna flunk. And I never heard of that before and I was kind of, I was actually kind of like, what, what are we talking about here? Like what, so instead of having like a kind of a set, Bar that you have to that you're graded against. All of a sudden, you're graded against everyone else in the class, and that's where the where the grade sits. So the magical part of grading on a curve is that you could flunk a test, but really actually, or you could pass a test even though you actually flunked it. I mean, how do you get better than that, right? Um, in fact, that's kind of how the gospel goes. But um, it was inter- it was just interesting to me because being you know I. Um, I was in that moment going like, hold on, how is that fair? How is that fair to the kids that did well? You know, and then how is that really fair to the kids who, who didn't do well? So it was really interesting to me to, to think through that and, and wonder about grading on a curve. Now, when I read this verse, Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Does anybody read that and go, man, I sure hope God grades on a curve? Because that's pretty high. That's a pretty high standard. That's a pretty high bar that seems to be set here. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm, I'm curious how this. This is a very. It's not even up there. Sorry. This is a very important um, statement of Jesus's. It's, it's one of the central statements in his Sermon on the Mount. So I'm, I'm curious of how it hits you. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is how it hits me, honestly. I've got to get an A plus. I've got to ace the test. I have to get every single correct dot on the Scantron filled in if Jesus is ever going to be happy with me, if God's ever going to accept me. Wouldn't it be nice if God graded on a curve, but I better do the best that I can. Or maybe you think of being on your best behavior, making sure that you go to finishing school and and you have all the right manners and you sit up straight and you do everything perfectly and correctly is God's biggest desire for us to be on our best behavior. Or do you read this verse, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and just say, you know what? Jesus has just set the bar too high. He's just set the bar completely too high. He's called us to live up to something that we can never achieve. And so is Jesus' purpose in teaching the Sermon on the Mount and putting all these things before us to simply get us to give up? Is it like, okay, people, you can't do this, so take your ball, go home. You just can't measure up to what I want from you. But let's take a little bit and answer a seriously important question. Doc asked this question in a different form a couple weeks ago, but let me ask it this way. Are you willing to take Jesus seriously? Are you willing to take Jesus seriously? I see no affirmative responses. So, okay. Thank you, Wayne. It's always Wayne, right? 
Are you willing to take Jesus seriously? And if you're willing to take him seriously in your own mind, in your own heart, if you're willing to take him seriously, are you willing to seriously consider and embrace his central teaching? Are, are, you, are you willing to take what he has said seriously? Because I, I think quite honestly, this is our big problem. We say we take Jesus seriously, but we really don't. Jesus, I take you seriously, but I think your commandments might be a little bit over the top. They might just be a little bit too uncomfortable, too countercultural. If I really take your teaching seriously, people aren't going to like me. We don't want to submit in many ways to what Jesus requires us or, or we see what he requires of us. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We call it impossible and we don't even make an attempt. The prolific British author G.K. Chesterton once said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. The Christian ideal has not been tried and like, okay, that's not good enough and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, nearly every English translation that, that I looked at, except for the message, used the word perfect in this verse. And Doc mentioned last week, the Greek word there is teleos and it's a word that that makes me think of, of the, the word perfect is a, is a word that makes me think of perfect test scores or, or uppity finishing schools. It's a word that seems unattainable. But what I'm gonna suggest this morning, as Doc pushed at last week as well, that a more appropriate translation of this word might be the word whole. W-H-O-L-E, whole. Be whole as your heavenly father is whole. Or, or the word complete. Be, be complete as your heavenly father is complete. Or, or the word mature. Look at, look at these verses where the same Greek word is taken and rendered as mature. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 6. Again in Philippians chapter 3 verse 15. Let those of you who are mature, same word, Rendered as perfect in Matthew chapter five. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Colossians chapter four, verse 12. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So maturity, which is a be growing up, isn't it? Isn't that what maturity is? Becoming an adult, becoming who we're supposed to be, becoming whole is a process of growth into a proper and suitable goal. Or, or a proper and suitable end through a God-overseen process that we call sanctification. Have you heard that word before, sanctification? It's becoming more and more like Jesus and God oversees this and he's making us more whole. He's making us more mature. He's making us more like Jesus and he's making us more perfect. You know, when you plant an acorn in the ground, your hope is that you will one day have an oak tree. Nobody plants an acorn and hopes for a giraffe. It's just not what an acorn is for. It's not the proper end of an acorn. It's not what an acorn is built to do. The proper and suitable end of an acorn is an oak tree. The proper and suitable end of a human person is to become fully human to become whole. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter five, that we would become whole, mature, fully human. 
Consider, if you will, a couple of helpful summaries of the same idea in James chapter one, where James says, and let steadfastness have its full effect. So as we, as we stand fast through trials, those affect us, those help us to mature. It's, it takes time and process. That you may be perfect, same word there, teleos, the same word, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James knows it's a process. It's going to be a process for us to become whole. First Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself, he's the one overseeing this process, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's this idea that God is making us whole. So Matthew 5, 48, be whole just as your father in heaven is whole. When Jesus calls us to be perfect like God, like our heavenly father is perfect, he's not talking about attaining a perfect test score on a heavenly entrance exam. He's not making sure that we do really well on our physicals when we get to the the gates of heaven. He's not referring to being on our best behavior even when we don't wanna be. He's talking about becoming who we were made to be which is fully human. And to become fully human is to become completely whole, that we would be on the same on the inside as we are on the outside, just like God is. Now, yesterday, in, in the course of about two hours, from just before noon to just about one o'clock, I received seven text messages, five phone calls, two emails, and a personal visit from someone who drove to my home to check and see if they really wanted me to, res- if, if I really wanted them to respond to a scam email message. How many of you got that email message from me yesterday telling you I was in a secret meeting and you couldn't bother me, but please send me, a th- was it $1,000 in gift cards, Jill, that they were asking? So that was fun. And it looked legit. If you, if you got it, look like people forwarded this to me. It had my picture on it. Like, I think they took the picture off the website. Had my picture on it. Had my name on it. Had a sneaky email. By the way, it wasn't my email. Nobody hacked my email. It wasn't actually from me, just in case you're wondering. It wasn't from me. It was from somebody pretending to be me. And it seemed kind of fishy, didn't it? And that's the word they use, P-H-I-S-H. They're fishing to try to hook you to send them something. And I, uh, Jake Salmond, actually, you guys remember Jake, right, from Young Life? He called me yesterday afternoon. He's sitting on the beach, by the way, in Florida. He's like, hey, I just got this email from you. I just want to let you know. And I'm like, oh, thanks. You're like the 18th person that's let me know that they got this email from fake me. And uh, he said, yeah, Kyla got one exactly like it a few months ago from a priest. And so it seems like these people are basically targeting like priests and pastors and churches because they, they think they can um, tap into basically your good heart to send them money. And so here's this thing that looks on the outside like it's legit, like it's from me, like it's got my name, it's got your name, it's got my picture on it. It looks like it's from me, but behind the scenes, if you pay close enough attention, you know that that's not the case. So... Behind the scenes is very much different from the face that you got on that email. Now, the biblical definition for this is 
hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the opposite of wholeness. And uh, Jesus uses this word, really introduces it here, and uses it three times in this chapter. Verse two, he says, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. And then again in verse five, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Then verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Now, in our day and age, in our society, when we talk about hypocrisy, usually when we call someone a hypocrite, we're saying that they're their actions do not line up with their words. Would you agree with that? So someone who, who maybe talks a talk but doesn't walk the walk, right? They say, hey, do this, but then they go ahead and do something completely different. They say one thing, they do another, their talk is good, their behavior is not. That's, that's how we define hypocrisy. Now, Jesus is not defining hypocrisy that way. When he speaks about hypocrisy, he calls people hypocrites whose whose behavior was perfect. These are squeaky clean people. So they're walking the walk, they're also talking the talk, but Jesus knows that something else is wrong because the image they're putting forward on the outside is not the same as what's on the inside. And actually what these hypocrites have done is they've used their good behavior to hide their sinful and selfish hearts. So when Jesus speaks of a hypocrite, he's speaking about someone who is not whole, who's not a whole person because their inner life does not align with their outer life. Here's how he puts it in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 to 28. He says this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear to righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Hypocrisy is looking one way on the outside and being completely different on the inside. Hypocrites talk the talk, they walk the walk, their outer life is squeaky clean, but on the inside they're putrid and disgusting because their inner life does not line up with their outer life. They're the opposite of of perfect, they're the opposite of whole. And in some way, shape, or form, we're we're all the same. Not all of us line up or all of us, none of us line up completely from the outside to the inside. But thankfully, Jesus came to planet Earth as a human being, and I would argue the most whole human being, the most fully human person in history, in order to bring us broken humans and make us whole again. That's why Jesus came. That's the gospel is to make us whole again. As we've seen in Matthew 5, Jesus is hammering home the point over and over again that our wholeness, our perfectness begins in our hearts. And the whole last half of chapter five revolved around that very point that our heart orientation, the direction and the posture of our heart is the most important thing about us. So God wants to make us whole, brothers and sisters, God wants to make us whole from the inside out. 
But in order to do that, he must show us the places where our hearts so easily get off track, where they, where they become distracted, where they become disconnected, where they become directed away from God. And most, one of the most subtle and one of the most insidious places, the most uh, insidious ways this happens is in the things that we do for God, like giving to the needy, or prayer, or fasting. The, the three examples he gives here in, in Matthew chapter six, which we're gonna unpack later, I'm not gonna get into all those today. The very, these very things are the things that so subtly draw our hearts and attentions or, or in which our hearts and atten- attention get directed away from God. Now, I'm pretty fortunate because I have a 22-year-old, but I also still have a seven-year-old. Right? It took us, Carrie always says, it took us 15 years to get everybody here. And uh, I've got a seven-year-old, and my seven-year-old and my 10-year-old still love to say, Daddy, watch me, when they're doing a trick on the trampoline, or Daddy, watch how fast I can run, and then they fast run around the yard, or Daddy, watch me score a goal in, in soccer. And there's something innocent, there's something beautiful about the joy a, t- a child takes in being seen and acknowledged by someone. Being seen and acknowledged by, by the one that they respect and they, they love the, the most, usually their mom and their dad. We're all wired, if you will, to be acknowledged by our Father. In these 21 verses here in, in Matthew 6, Jesus condemns religious hypocrisy by, by repeating this refrain three times. He says, do not be like the hypocrites, for they have received their reward in full. But you, whatever you do, whether it's giving or prayer or fasting, do it in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. He will pay you what you are due. And and so the hypocrisy that Jesus condemns is the person who performs acts that are outwardly directed towards God. Would you say prayer is, is an act that's directed towards God? Giving to the needy, directed, it's directed towards others, but it's also directed towards God. Fasting is an act that's directed towards God. So it's doing something that's supposed to be God-directed, but your heart is directed elsewhere. Your heart is directed toward devotion to being esteemed and gaining the praise in the eyes of other people. And so Jesus is saying, in a sense, that there's, there's two stages, two audiences, and two different kinds of rewards, Two stages, two audiences, two different kinds of rewards. And the first is a public stage. And on the public stage, the audience is other people, and the reward is human praise. Jesus says it three times. Those who who do these things for human praise have received their reward in full. He isn't isn't saying that hypocrites don't get a reward. He's like, yeah, they're gonna get a reward, sure. If you want human praise, if that's what you're going for, you will get your reward. You will get praised by anybody you want to praise you. But that's it. That's all you get. Game over. The reward you receive is all you're going to receive because it's it's the reward that's appropriate to the stage that you have chosen and the audience that you have chosen. On the other hand, Jesus actually commends the secret stage. It's like the the stage behind the stage, the backstage. He he commends the secret stage where, where the audience is your father, and the reward is a heavenly reward from him. Now, not to spoil a future sermon, 
But it's a heavenly, it's a heavenly treasure, not, not an earthly treasure. There's this ancient idea among Christians for hundreds of years that we live as believers, quorum Deo, the Latin term that means in front of the face of God or in the presence of God. Which is another way of saying that God always sees us. Whether we're in public or in private, he knows both our actions and he knows our motivations. He sees the outside and he sees the inside. He knows our hearts. And I think that when Jesus says, do these things before your father in secret or in the secret place, and he, the father who sees in secret or sees in the secret place will reward you, he's talking about the secret place of the heart. The most private, personal, secret thing about you and about me is our heart, and God knows our hearts perfectly. He is in the secret place, he sees the secret place, and he will reward us accordingly. And when I say that, it's difficult for us to hear, because is it really okay for us to pursue rewards from God, to do things so that God will give us something? I mean, aren't we supposed to be altruistic and just like, you know what? I'm not expecting anything in return. It's a difficult concept for many of us to grasp that Jesus would actually tap into our self-interest and ask us the question, basically, what kind of reward do you want? Do you want the reward of people's praise that as soon as they stop talking, it's gone? Or do you want a reward that's going to last forever? Think it through. Which one do you want? One that passes away or one that's eternal? And what we end up doing is we look for rewards in all the wrong places. And the problem with hypocrites is that Jesus points this out is that their heart orientation is wrong because they don't have the proper reward in mind. They've, get, they've gotten their ends mixed up with their means. So to put it in a, another way, they're using religious tools to do secular jobs. The very nature of giving to the needy of prayer and of fasting is, is devotion to God. These are fundamentally God-oriented acts, but when we twist these acts and use them in a, in a human-oriented way, we actually pervert them, and that is hypocrisy. So Jesus says in verses two and five and 16, they have received their reward in full. So we look for rewards from people and because they only last a little while, we crave more and then we pursue more and we get a little bit of praise and that feels really good, but then it dies away and so we pursue more and then we get a little bit more. We always are wanting, always seeking, always craving, but never satisfying. But in the end, we miss a better future reward and the call that Jesus would give to us is to desire better rewards. Jesus isn't shy about promising us rewards. even though it makes us uncomfortable, shouldn't we be doing things for God and not expecting anything in return? Well, no. Verse one, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The implication, well, don't you want a reward from your Father? Verse four, the last part of it, your Father who sees in secret will reward you, will repay you. Verse six, your Father who sees in secret will reward you, he'll repay you. Verse 18, your father who sees in secret will reward and repay you. So the question isn't, are we pursuing rewards? The question is, what rewards are we pursuing and who are we pursuing them from? Because Jesus is promising here that we will get the appropriate rewards from the place from which we seek them. 
And I'll just give you a few other verses to prove my point here. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. James 1, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. uh, 2 John verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but you will win a full reward. Henceforth, 2 Timothy 4, 8, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. So, so here's the punchline. Here's where, where we kind of want to connect the threads we've, we've looked at this morning. That we become whole, we become perfect, we become fully human when we seek the right kinds of rewards, We become fully human when we seek the right kinds of rewards. When we seek to lay up treasure in heaven, when we seek to perform for an audience of one, our Father who is in heaven, our lives become more and more like him. When we treasure the things that he treasures, when we love the things that he loves, when we desire the things that he desires, then we become more like him because our heart becomes more like him because as Jesus will say in verse, is it 21, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So when our highest value is the one who is perfectly whole, then we too begin to become perfectly whole. So the questions to walk out of here with are these. First of all, what rewards are you seeking? What rewards are you seeking? God is not asking you to just be content with less. He's not saying seek treasures in heaven and then we go, oh, really? Okay, I guess I have to put up with that. He's not asking us to settle for less. He's asking us to settle for the best things in the universe and calling us away from settling for lesser awards, rewards. So what rewards are you seeking? And then secondly, we gain a heart for better rewards by delighting in the things in which God delights. So if you think about heavenly treasures and you think, well, that's boring. That's not what I really want. What I really want is money. What I really want is a Tesla. What I really want is for my baseball team to win the world, you know, whatever, whatever it is that we want. We want things in this world, they sound appealing. They're in front of us, we get them right now, but God is asking us to be patient. Well, how do we cultivate a heart for the rewards that God wants to give us? Well, we begin by desiring the things in which God delights. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you delight yourself in the Lord, what does the greatest desire of your heart become? God himself. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you your delight. Delight yourself in the Lord and the Lord will give you himself. That's our treasure. And that's the greatest treasure we could ever hope for. The more we do this, the more we orient our hearts and minds toward God, the more our lives will become whole and the more we will walk in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect, be whole as your heavenly Father is perfect and whole. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful that we can come together as a worshiping body, as believers, as your sons and daughters, as family. We can come with our broken hearts. We can come with our tears and our grief and our loss. We can come with our frustrations and our anger. We can come, Lord, with, uh, with our sadness and our joy. 
We can come with gratitude, thankfulness for all the things that you've given us. God, we come all over the map. We confess that. We confess that we are scattered, often broken people, and yet you are a God who takes broken pieces of glass and makes a beautiful mosaic, a stained glass window out of us. You put us back together in ways that we could never imagine. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that in us, and I pray you do it by changing the posture and the desires and the delights of our heart. God, may we desire heavenly rewards, heavenly treasures. May we desire the delight of our hearts and may the delight of our hearts be you. The things of you and the things of your kingdom, God, the things that last, the things that are eternal. Father, Father, would you make us whole? Would you make us holy? And may we love you more than we love anything else. In your name we pray.